I think, you know, for every non-Māori head of school, dean, whatever, for any faculty, there should be a Māori one. Because in New Zealand we have a treaty, you know, we're promised equality. And so that's that that's what honouring the treaty looks like to me. It looks like at every step, in every department, co-governance with Māori. And so that might be really radical for some people to even think about. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today we've got two interviews about Indigenous knowledge, both inside the Academy and outside of it. A little later, we'll speak with Tara McAllister about challenges Indigenous academics face and how we can start to decolonize the Academy. But first, let's talk about traditional ecological knowledge, what it is, and how it differs from a Western view of the natural world. With me is Ray Pirati, an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Kansas. His research training is in evolutionary ecology and population biology, with emphasis on life history evolution, along with the dynamics of parental care, mate choice, and hybridization. He also researches the relationship between indigenous knowledge and Western science, especially ecology and evolution, and is the author of the books Indigenous Knowledge, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology, and The First Domestication, How Wolves and Humans Co-Evolved. Ray, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So I wanted to have you on to talk about traditional ecological knowledge. And I think probably the best place to start is an initial definition of what that means, because I don't know that a lot of people are familiar with that term. Basically, what it means, traditional ecological knowledge refers to is the knowledge that indigenous people hold that relates to the natural or non-human world. Although it's it, 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 it's in many ways much deeper than that. It contains spiritual and, you know, sort of, you know, serious, deep, deeper involved, more deeply involved overtones that people don't normally think about as part of science. And this is why it gets called knowledge rather than science. And it's, it can be controversial because some Native people don't like the term science being used to describe their knowledge. Whereas I think that there is much less difference. Uh, the, the problem is, as is, is I mentioned in the introduction of my book there, that uh, there's a long history of Western uh, scholars and Western people in general sort of denigrating indigenous ways of understanding the world and treating them as you know, mystical or romantic or something like that when they're not. And so as a consequence, you get some indigenous people who don't want to have the word science applied to their knowledge. And a lot of uh, people of European ancestry who don't really understand the relationship between the way that they know they understand, they, they understand things and science. Hope that isn't too complicated. Oh, for sure. Um, in the book, you also spend a bit more time actually digging into the term traditional specifically. So can you unpack that term a little bit and also talk about why you feel it's un it's important to unpack that term a bit? Well, the problem is, and, and there are a lot of anthropologists that, that, that have done this, and that when, they, when the term traditional gets used, it seems to refer in the minds of many scholars to 
first contact between an indigenous people and Western explorers, mountain men, scientists, whatever. And so the, the, the idea is somehow that the knowledge was locked in time at first contact and has never developed and basically, you know, didn't really develop before that either. And so you, you get a lot of debate about how much from Western thought has, you know, sort of slid over into indigenous thought. But, but the real issue is that traditional it really in most, many people's minds implies fixed in time, whereas I think of it more as that the traditions are flexible and capable of accommodating new ways of thinking. It's interesting how even at that term, there seems to be uh, conflicting ways of understanding that word. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's because people in, in the European, in, I don't want to say the European tradition, people in, in, from the European, thinking from a European point of view, tend to think of tradition as something from the past. And a lot of anthropologists and even Native people don't, like, don't want that term because they don't think that their knowledge or the, the, the information that's being discussed should be considered as being locked in the, in the past. Because if ideas turn out to no longer be that useful, people will abandon them and they will incorporate new ways of thinking into their understanding of the world. And so the, the, the idea of tradition is sort of like when you're talking about somebody in, in a European tradition that would say, be practicing Victorian standards of, right. of, of, of how society should function. And the native people don't want themselves thought of in those terms. Kind of like, I, I feel more at home with the term tradition when I think about like the traditions of my family at certain times of year. Sure. They are, uh, they're constant in that we have traditions that we do regularly and we call back to, but they also evolve as the people in our family change, as new people come in, as people leave, um, as people move and the family configuration changes. Uh, it reacts and it just continues to evolve as it goes forward. That, that's a very good way of thinking about it. And in fact, that's what a lot of the, uh, of the indigenous peoples are trying to do is, is emphasize that they have traditions and they have ceremonies and rituals, but that they, the things can change as the environment changes. One of the, the real issues, which I've addressed, I think at various parts of the book is that up until almost the 21st century, European thinking about ecology tended to be based upon the idea of the balance of nature. And that is that when nature was perturbed, it always went back to the original state. Whereas indigenous people never really thought that. They were used to the world constantly changing and essentially trying to keep up with the changes and figure out how to function and survive when, especially when the changes tended to get greater than they were used to dealing with. 
I definitely want to dig in more detail to the differing worldviews between sort of Western science and traditional um, ecological knowledge that you talk about in the book. I found your discussion of these two kind of worldviews and philosophies really helpful as a study of contrasts. I think in particular as someone who is pretty heavily steeped in a Western mindset. Um, And when we're steeped in something, it can be really hard to see it. And there were definitely things uh, that your book highlighted to me that I don't think I'd ever really thought about before. And I definitely want to start to unpick those a little bit with you. I think probably a good place to start is the notion of community. This was definitely a core um, discussion point uh, in the book, for sure. Yes, it is. Uh, indigenous peoples think about community as being associated with a specific place where the people have lived for you know long periods of time, and the community itself consists of all living things and even the geographical features and the climate and everything of a particular location. And so as a, as a consequence, their definition of community is very local and very detailed. Uh, in the Western tradition, when we hear the term community, we tend to think only in terms of uh, the, the humans with which we interact. Unless we are ecologists, and then, and then ecologists tend to separate the idea of a Western or a human community from an ecological community, whereas indigenous people basically integrate the two to such a degree that they can't be untangled. It's quite interesting to think about community in terms of these contrasts, at one side being incredibly inclusive, including, like you say, the human and all of the non-human, including uh, not just the living things, but also in a lot of cases, the the things that we would consider to be non-living, the geography, the weather patterns. Um, Whereas in the Western approach can be very exclusive. When I know historically, when I think of community, that word is very tangled with just humans. Humans form communities, creatures form populations. Yeah, that's basically true. I mean, the, uh, but the, the, this, the various non-human species have communities as well, consisting not only of members of their own species, but of a lot of other species around them. And the indigenous people basically just integrated themselves into that way of thinking and considered themselves one among many. But keep in mind, like I said, this is local. One of, one of the big differences between indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge is Western knowledge tries to go and become global. That is, if you discover... If you make a discovery, you assume that it will apply any place in the world. Indigenous people don't make that type of assumption. They know that they're, what they, have, they, they have great knowledge of their local area and the dynamics of the environment and the species they interact with and everything, but they don't assume that if they go to another part of the, of the world or even move you know, a couple hundred miles, that things will be exactly the same. They are ready to learn what's new, and their adaptation is very locally focused, which really is what happens with adaptation of species in nature. Uh, A lot of most animals, and certainly most plants, don't do a lot of traveling. 
they, they get to know the organisms that live around them in great detail, but they don't know what the organisms might be like, you know, 100 or 1,000 miles away. Whereas in the Western tradition, we want to be able to apply findings that we generate to every place. And that leads to some real problems. I mean, you, you may have noticed one of the things that I wrote about was when I was an undergraduate that having two graduate students in my lab arguing with each other all the time because they were studying the same species in different environments and couldn't agree about what they were seeing. And each was convinced that the other must be getting it wrong. And I basically su suggested to them that, you know, maybe it's the environment that's causing these differences. And they thought I was incredibly naive as an undergraduate to, to even bring something like that up because they were sophisticated graduate students and they knew what they'd seen, but it couldn't seem to occur to them that the biology of a species could be considerably different if it lived, you know, a uh, thousand miles away from where their study site was. There's definitely something in the Western ideologies that is constantly seeking large applications or rules that we can apply broadly to things rather than specific things. I definitely see this um, not just in biology, but uh, in mathematicians and physics and all different kinds of disciplines, even in, I think back to um, my experience in uh, the English department, we're looking for large themes uh, when we read literature. We're looking for things that are applicable to all people. Um, we do have a bit of a preoccupation with this must apply to all things or it's not good enough. Well, the irony is in, in physics and chemistry, you can generalize, but native people tended not to ever really look at physics and chemistry. It was a lot, not that they, that they weren't aware that, that things like that were happening. It was just that's not the way they focused their question on, you know, uh, gravity and, you know, momentum and uh for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction sort of thing. Their theories didn't work that way. Their theories were more almost social in the way they viewed the interactions between humans and non-humans. And they just transferred those over into dealing with landforms as well. And, and one of the things that I've written about, but not in that book, after that, I wrote that book, was that... Uh, Aristotle's concepts of life as flow fit much better onto indigenous way of a lot of indigenous people tend to think about things when they treat like air movements and water and even things like molten rock as as flowing and therefore they can regard them as having life in a sense not in the not in the sense that that Western people tend to think of life but but this def definitely follows from the oldest Aristotelian ideas when A Aristotle was essentially inventing biology. One of the other interesting things uh, that I feel like your book teased out was also the uh, Western sciences preoccupation with breaking things apart into small, discrete little pieces. So taking a whole breaking it down to its smallest possible pieces and trying to figure out how each of those pieces work to try and understand the whole. Um, whereas it, it seems like from your book, it sounds like 
traditional ecological knowledge is very focused on the human scale of the world around us. Let's look at things at this scale rather than global or very tiny. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, Western science works better at very large scales like cosmology, like how the how the planets move around each other and everything or the the nature of the universe or at tiny scales like cells and DNA and chromosomes and even molecules and atoms. Their Western science has worked very well, even though the irony is Western science is operating without actually having seen, you know, molecules or atoms or anything like that. In fact, in many cases, without having seen cells, it's very recent that Western science actually started talking about cell theory and the idea that all large complex organisms are made up of a multitude of cells of different types. But Western science had, because Western science is people talk about it being reductionistic. The further down it goes, the more accurate its results seem to be. So people tend to rely upon that, even though they sometimes ignore the fact that at the level of uh, ecological communities or even of, of population dynamics of species, that uh, Western science is much less accurate in those types of situations, which is one reason we have problems with climate change. We have problems with species going extinct. We have problems with all sorts of just how we manage our environment because, you know, we're so used to being able to think of, oh, well, you know, we can, we can solve these sort of big engineering problems or the little tiny uh, biochemical problems and kind of trying to ignore what goes on in between, which is a real problem in a lot of biology departments, at least in the U.S. and Canada today is they've gone so heavily into uh, cell and molecular stuff that they've kind of abandoned behavior and ecology. Yeah, that was one of the other threads I feel like the book really pulled at was the Western science approach being very anatomical, being very physical in that way you're talking about, about uh, chemicals, about um, the cell at the cellular level, that kind of thing. Whereas an indigenous worldview is much more focused on individuals, on relationships, um, and on behavior than Western science has been. Oh, yeah, that, that's definitely true. I mean, indigenous peoples had to learn the environment in which they lived, and that meant paying as close attention as possible to all the other species around you that you recognize. Now, there were some species they probably didn't uh, pay attention to that Western science might, that, that because they weren't important in their day-to-day -day survival. But even so, they wanted to learn as much as possible about all of these different types of organisms and to try to understand how a change in one could lead to changes in the other. Because uh, as one of my colleagues once pointed out, that the uh, when you're looking at Native peoples, uh, the judgment of the quality of their work or their understanding is not rewarded with grants and publications, but with survival. And if you're trying to survive in a changing environment, you need to know what that means 
and how what all what alternatives exist depending on what sort of curveballs the environment may throw at you over your lifetime or over across generations. Yeah, absolutely. It comes from a different focus, uh, and the different focus, the different focus that generates a different worldview doesn't invalidate it as knowledge. It's still an important and accurate way of looking at the world around you. Well, as one major example in today's world, Native people have no trouble with climate change. They, they've been noticing it before people of European ancestry did. They've been talking about it since at least the 80s, maybe before that. Whereas in when, right now we have this silly debate in Western science or Western thinking about whether or not humans are capable of causing the end uh, of impacts that will affect the entire globe because the spiritual traditions of Western people have argued that only their creator figure or their God has the power to actually change the planet. And therefore, if there's climate change, either it's not really happening or that God has decreed that it would that this is this is going to happen, in which case humans can't do anything about it. Whereas indigenous people don't believe any of that. They believe that their impact, their behaviors, and their actions can change things, and that the environment changes constantly, and in many cases, without humans being able to have any control over or predictability, except in a very general sense. I find it fascinating, and this is something that I've come back to a few times in topics with a few different people from various points of view, but certainly certainly people from a Western tradition, at least, both in science and beyond science, but even Westernized science definitely is preoccupied with what it wants to be the specialness of humans in relation to the world, even when a lot of the evidence we have shows that humans are just like any other creature in the ways that other creatures are like other creatures. Um, But we are very preoccupied with trying to tease apart a special place or a special position for humans in the world. Right. I mean, for example, the idea that, that, uh, humans were created in the image of their God. Uh, Native people don't know. I'm not aware of practically any Native culture that assumes that. Uh, In most cases, the creator figures that they they are either don't seem to be physically embodied or that they are represented as species of non-humans that turn out to be really important in the development of a particular cultural tradition. And so, you know, like in, in uh, some of the, like the Shoshone people believe in wolf as having been their creator figure. And so be, because wolves were very, very important in their development as a cultural tradition. And you, you see uh, that theme repeating itself in a number of, of, of other different tribes, whereas uh, even Western scientists tend to be trapped into the idea of this anthropomorphic god that's still in charge of things. Like I periodically run into some of these people like Francis Collins and uh, trying to remember some of the others as a good Ken, 
can't remember his last name. He's at Brown University where they're, they're devout Christians, yet also evolutionary biologists. But the problem is, is that because of that, they insist that there has to be a separation between their scientific work and their belief system. Whereas indigenous people don't have that problem. Your, your belief system emerges from the land and the species you interact with. And so as a consequence, you interact with them on a regular basis. You don't need a church. You don't need a, you know, places like that. You need to, to just pay as close attention as possible anytime anything is happening in front of you and try to figure out how it fits into the your overall understanding of the world. It's interesting how this idea sinks in and really permeates through our culture at all kinds of different levels, including in our conservation approaches. If we think about the idea of conservation, at least the way uh, it is in a Western tradition, um, it's really about putting boundaries between nature or wilderness and humans in order to protect it, in order to keep it um, unchanged or return it to a state of its most natural state, I guess. Um, and that really says a lot about how we feel. It, it definitely reveals that we feel we should be separate, like that separation is somehow right. Well, again, I mean, it, it, what this really all goes back to is Descartes. And that's, that's, that's the idea, because even Descartes, when he was trying to, you know, sort of push the Enlightenment and uh, get people to, to move away from depending upon religion, still could not, uh, you know, had, had to, as part of his philosophical arguments, argue that you know, non-human life forms were basically, you know, just machines was the metaphor he used, although it was a terrible metaphor. And that humans were also machines, but that humans had a ghost in the machine, which is the soul. And, and the soul is what it's, is expected to survive after death and then be assumed up into heaven to sit with God. And, you know... Again, indigenous people took a lot of stuff very, very seriously and their responsibility very seriously, but they did not think of themselves. I mean, they realized that they were different from other species, but they never thought of themselves as being superior to other species. In your book, you talk about how quite often um, in indigenous cultures, they look to animal species or non-human species as places for wisdom, as, as places to learn from. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, they, they, they felt that they needed to remember that they, their lives depended on knowing as much as they could about these species. And there were many different ways of learning. One of the reasons that Wolf was given so much status, especially upon the plains in the Intermountain West, was wolf, when, when uh, humans arrived in North America, uh, they may have brought wolves with them, which we tend to refer to as dogs, 
or they may just have interacted with the local wolves, but they spent a lot of time learning from the wolves because the wolves were the species most similar to them ecologically in terms of the living in, in family groups, uh, you know, hunting, depending on hunting for as a way of life. But at the same time, also that you had to keep the family going. If the family died out, then the, all the traditions associated with that family would die out. And so that they recognized or thought about the same thing being true with wolves and in the way they understood them. And so when you read their accounts and with their discussions of interactions with other species, they are recognizing that these other species may be better than humans are at a lot of skills and that the humans had better figure out, you know, since given, given the humans tend to be slow compared to practically any other animal. I don't know if you've recently, there was a video showing of a, of a dog that got onto a, uh, the, the uh, track during a track meet. And it just ran down all the humans, no matter how fast they were going. Uh, humans are slow, but very skilled technologically. Uh, wolves are fast and uh, powerful, but not terribly skilled technologically. But the two of them together made a truly deadly combination. In fact, some of my colleague, uh, Pat Shipman at Penn State University, argued that the only reason that humans were ever able to hunt things like mammoths was because they had wolves helping them. Because otherwise, they, they simply would have lacked the capability, you know, uh, Clovis points or not. <laughs> I want to dig a little bit more into the comparison between humans and wolves and that relationship, because it's definitely one that you talk about uh, a lot at the book in the book and you come back to. And in particular, um, one of the themes that you talk about is uh, the sort of predator versus prey and how the different traditions tend to position humans in different places uh, or in different positions. Um, and that I found really fascinating and something I had never thought about before. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Indigenous people think of themselves as predators. They were hunters. They ate a lot of meat. They knew that they could eat other things as well, but their primary identification of themselves was as predators, which is why when you look at the species that are considered to be, I won't say best, but, or superior, but, but that the, there's the, the closest ties to them. They're all predators, wolves, bears, cougars, badgers, eagles, you know, even moles, weirdly enough, in, in, the, in the Southwest where I grew up, the, the, uh, those are all considered to be ex extremely important species that sort of are responsible for a lot of the sort of the orientation of the local community. Uh, the prey species like bison and deer and salmon and elk and things like that are considered to be extremely important, but they did it. They, the humans didn't identify with them to the same extent that they identified with the predators because the predators were ecologically the way they were. Now, this is actually a thing that I do with my students all the time and in my indigenous theme classes is that in the Western way of thinking, especially 
actually since the certainly since the 19th century and up until the present time, probably before that, uh, humans thought of themselves as prey. You look at the famous stories, things like Three Little Pigs, Little Red Riding Hood, all, all these stories, you know, uh, Peter and the Wolf, all these things, you know, that the, the, the humans were identified with prey. And I think in some ways this goes back to Christianity and the idea that the members of a Christian congregation are a flock and the person who uh, sort of teaches them and works with them is referred to as a shepherd. And in, in many cases, I mean, you know, the, the one of the most powerful metaphors in Western uh, religious thinking is Jesus Christ as being the lamb of God, because rather than sacrifice a lamb, uh, Jesus was sacrificed to supposedly save mankind from original sin, which I've never been able to figure out exactly what it was, uh, other than that sort of silly story about Eve eating an apple. But uh, basically, indigenous people think of themselves as predators, people from European traditions, and even from some non-European traditions, like Japan and China, think of themselves now as prey. And our media reinforce this constantly. So one exercise I always give my students is to see if they can find films or television shows or something like that where humans actually go out into nature and have a good experience. Because in so much of nature or films involving non-humans, humans are the prey. Whether you're looking at stuff like Jaws, whether you're looking at, at The Ghost in the Dark, whether you're looking at all sorts of films that, that when humans go into nature, they're exposed to predators who try to kill them. Uh, to Native people, when they went out into nature, they were just moving from one part of the place, their home, home area to another. And the predators that they encountered, they regarded as being basically like them in motivation and in ecology. And so they didn't fear them, although they certainly would treat them with respect and try to avoid any conflicts with them. Given the definition, sort of wider definition of community in an indigenous worldview, and also trying to reconcile that with their position as a predator, how do they reconcile the idea of killing of community members? Because as soon as your community becomes inclusive and includes the non-human, I think a lot of people start to feel immediate tension about that idea of, but eating animals becomes uh, more front of mind, I think, when you try and incorporate them into your larger community. Uh, you're completely correct on that. I mean, one of the major debates in, and one of the major reasons for this, the spiritual ceremonial, a lot of Native people say they don't really have religions because they think of religions as being, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, things that take place in, in temples and in churches and things like that. But uh Practically all of the major ceremonies of most of the Native American peoples were uh, based upon sort of trying to cope with the, the question you just asked. That is, how do you take lives of fellow community members while at 
to say to save yourself and to allow your family and yourself to persist well but at the same time taking lives and so you get the rituals of making offerings to either animals or plants when you would collect them for either food or shelter or anything like that you get the tradition of giving thanks to a prey item when it it's been killed and so that the you know most of the spiritual traditions of indigenous people were devoted to trying to work with the environment and placate it so that it would not revenge itself upon people for taking lives. And this is why there's so much emphasis on not taking more than's needed in, in, in indigenous people and the idea that everything was used, although one thing I did try to address in the book and, and I, I've sort of developed this in some other ways is that that didn't, when, when they said nothing was wasted, quite often they meant that they would share with some of the other species. So if there were, if after some bison had been killed, if they, if the, the, the part the kills were shared with wolves or bears or coyotes or crows or magpies or eagles or anything like that, then, you know, that was not, that was considered used. You know, when they, they said every part of an animal was used, it didn't mean that the, the humans had a specific use for every last little drop of blood or anything, but that it did get, in fact, used and incorporated into the community in a way that gave life to the entire community. I th- the, the idea of people as predators uh, to a westernized sense is definitely a little bit off-putting until I start to think more closely about if humans aren't separate, if humans are just another piece of the ecological web of an area and other predators can take things and other creatures and not feel like there's an ethical challenge there, it also shifts. It feels like that, that, that tension is also, again, born out of humans believing that humans are special and is probably easier to resolve if we are willing to see ourselves as just a differently shaped wolf in a lot of ways. Or to see the wolves as differently shaped people. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which, is, which, which, which is a very important part of a lot of, of, a lot of this line of thinking and all. Now, nowadays... We are seeing problems with indigenous communities and all where they're starting to been, become so assimilated and acculturated into, into Western ways of thinking and everything that they have lost some of that. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I've sometimes discussed with my Navajo students is that before they became sheep herders, coyote was extremely important to them. Now coyote is seen as a pest. <laughs> You know, the coyote didn't change, but the relationship between the humans and the coyotes did. So that the you know, and uh, but but when it comes to wolves, indigenous people are really willing to go to the wall for wolves. I mean, there there was a situation in Wisconsin a couple of years ago where they wanted to institute a a wolf hunt and and to to to, re- to allow people to kill wolves. And they told the tribes that they were 
they were permanently willing, they were allowed to participate as well. And the tribes basically said no. And more to the point, especially the Ojibwe people up there that had been involved in the walleye controversies of the walleye wars with sports fishermen said that uh, if you insist on killing our brother, by what they meant wolf, then we're going to take all the walleye. We're, we're going to take all the walleye that you need because that's within our rights. And if, if you don't, if you leave the wolves alone, then we will continue to work with you about walleye management that can benefit everybody. But if you are if you are going to break our law, then we're going to ignore yours. And this, since we have been given the right by the courts to take, you know, much higher numbers of walleye than they're ever taking, we will do so. And they basically backed the state of Wisconsin down over that. Now, nowadays, especially in the last few months and all, we've seen places like Montana and Idaho trying to, you know, reinstitute wolf kills and everything, even though the wolves are still endangered in their states, basically because they think that will appeal to a certain element in their society. And appealing to certain elements in American society has become a very destructive and may be the end of American society. But I don't want to get off into that. That's that's away from TEK. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about some of the ways that some of this uh, contrast of worldviews is exposed in modern, what we think of as modern science. Um, and uh, there were some great examples of your own experience that you had in uh, the book, actually, um, that I think are just really good exemplaries of uh, some of these kinds of problems. Um, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into science and uh, your sort of experience of science? Because that will help frame some of your later experiences that I think uh, really are uh, strong examples of some of what you're talking about. I got into science or I really got into nature because I, you know, I, I, when I was a little kid, what I thought of was science, I now realized was uh, trying to feel connected to the natural world. And that was where I got started so that when, when I was an undergraduate, one of the problems I had was that, you know, I'd be taking classes with all the pre-meds, but the professors knew I wasn't a pre-med. So they would they would think that my grade didn't matter because I wasn't planning to go to medical school. And therefore, you know, like I had, I had situations where I would have higher grades than pre-meds, but the pre-med would get a higher grade from the professor because they thought that it was more important that they get into medical school than that I get into graduate school or be allowed to continue my own personal investigations of the natural world. And that, that taught me a lot about the way Western science actually operates, especially at the academic level. Uh, but so over the years, I spent as much time watching and trying to take care of creatures as I could and I didn't really have much in the way of pets. I mean, I had, I had a dog and then a cat were, were the only pets I'd ever had up until I was, you know, in college, basically. And they, they were really important to me, but they weren't the same thing as spending all the time out looking at all these other species. And it was finally, and this will age me, 
Uh, I was one of the first students at an American university to enroll in a course in ecology. When they first started teaching ecology in the uh, U.S., was actually not until the late 1960s. And I was one of the first students to enroll in that. And when I looked at it after all this, you know, being in high school biology and all and introductory freshman biology where everything gets cut up and everything, I finally looked and said, oh my God, there is a field that fits with what I want to do. But I didn't realize it existed until I was 20 years old. <laughs> I've been always figured, you know, oh, well, you're a natural historian or something. And when I started realizing that, that studying ecology and evolution was a way of connecting to nature, uh, that's when I started really getting into that. And that's why what I, the, the goal of the book that you're talking about was to try to get a lot of uh, Native people or people who aren't happy with the uh, reductionist way of doing science to realize that you can study ecology and evolution very well with a worldview that does not require uh, collection and dissection. What's really fascinating about this topic and also the way you talk about it in the book is Western science has tended to look down on forms of knowledge transmission that it sees as metaphorical, that it sees as mythical, or that it sees as just storytelling. Um, but you very rightly point out that all knowledge to some extent, and certainly a lot of Western science is captured in models and metaphors. We tend to call them models in Westernized science rather than metaphor, and we tend to look down on metaphor. But at its heart, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, you're completely right on that. I mean, that's that's kind of what I've been getting at here is, is that the the carrying capacity and MSY approaches are models, and but they're also metaphors. They assume, and the the assumptions in a lot of models is what really you, you can see the, the the cracks in them, like the assumption that that the environment is constant, because without a constant environment, the uh, carrying capacity and MSY models just fall apart. And yet, you would think that Western science had real, would realize that the environment was variable, but it was really not until the 1980s and in the 1990s, when people started really making a big deal about climate change, that Western science started to acknowledge that environments were, in fact, changeable, both on a local and on a global level. And now where everybody's running around trying to figure out how to deal with that, whereas indigenous people have been dealing with that for thousands of years. And one of the things that I sort of want to emphasize here was that uh, from a point of view of indigenous people, you know, they had these ideas. They, they may not have called them carrying capacity or competitive exclusion or anything like that, or, or MSY way, way before Western science did, but they, the principles are the same. They, 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 the way they uh, framed them was in terms of showing respect for other species, not in terms of trying to make sure that the species would persist, though in practice, those came down to the same thing. Yeah, it's uh, you're sort of personifying the idea of respecting the species, uh, respecting non-human creatures just 
because they're their own creatures that exist and are deserving of respect versus I think the way most humans tend to think about all non-human things, which is a resource. Um, and right. yeah, like the term resource, we think of it as a very objective term, but actually there's a lot underlying that term that is, when you sort of start to pick it apart, yeah. is really problematic. Well, one thing you need to keep in mind, I mean, especially as a Canadian, Canada has a largely resource-based economy mm -hmm. because Canada is so rich in what people think of as resources. But, you know, Oren Lyons, who was a uh, Onondaga scholar, used to meet with wildlife people in New York all the time, and he'd always make the statement to them that, uh, you know, how come every time we sit down to talk about our, our uh, you know, how to deal with non-humans, you talk about resources and we want to talk about relatives. And I think that's, that's a really key way of, of embodying the conflict as, as things happen here. Because, you know, if you think of something as a resource, then it almost by definition is exploitable. If you think of it as a relative, it's not. You have to yeah. take it very seriously. The term resource is by its nature an exploitable object. Is it, that's baked right. into the term resource. I mean, I, I can't think of a way of conceiving of the word resource without the utility of a resource or the exploitation of a resource. It's all baked into that word. But the irony is that indigenous people use the same approaches in some ways. I mean, they're they're taking plants they're taking animals for for to, to feed themselves but they they don't they, they embed those activities in spiritual traditions which is why a lot of people tend to think of native people as being mystical they're not mystical they're trying to deal with what they consider to be the essential problems of existence in a way that won't you know, essentially cause them to, their brains to explode. And the way to do that is to try to act respectfully and thoughtfully in dealing with other species under all circumstances. And it's not being mystical. It's, in fact, it's elementarily practical. But uh, Western science thinks because it collects data that it's not mystical. And yet, uh, a thing I read in, actually in an article in, in the New Yorker a couple of years ago, just a year and a half ago, was that uh, you know they said guy was saying that scientific traditions assume that experiments rather than observation are most important in what you're doing, and that you have to collect data. But the way to think about data from an indigenous perspective is that behind every data point is a story. And Western science concentrates on the data points. Indigenous thought emphasizes the stories. There are things that Western science is better at, and there are things that traditional uh, indigenous knowledge is better at. And both of those things can learn and complement each other. It's not necessarily uh, this way or this way. It should be both because a diversity of worldviews inevitably is always better. Right. I mean, there was, there was, a, there was a, uh, a book called Neither Wolf Nor Dog that I don't know if you've ever come across, but it was about a, an interaction between a, a white nature writer and a, uh, a, a Lakota elder. 
And there's one point in where they're, they're trying to figure out how to rec- reconcile a lot of these differences that you and I have been talking about, but not from a specifically scientific point of view, but from a cultural point of view. And the, the elder says to the white writer, he says to them, he said, says, the problem is for your people is cages. He said, you, you came to North America to be free and you wanted to escape the cages you lived in in Europe. But the only thing you knew how to do was build new cages over here in America. He said, if you had come to us and shared our knowledge and we'd shared your knowledge and we'd work together, he said, and so, so that neither you, you, nobody looked down on anybody else, but we just tried to figure out how our knowledge is complemented each other. He said, what a country this would have been. And that always breaks my heart to think about that, but it still gives me motivation to go on. <laughs> Well, I think that is probably an excellent place to end. Ray, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And a really interesting book. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. It was good, wonderful talking to you as well. Thank you very much for this honor. And if you want to learn more about Ray, his work or his books, we've got links to get you started available in our lovely show notes. Next, let's turn our attention from what academics choose to study to the academy and the institutions themselves. With me is Dr. Tara McAllister, a mother and an Indigenous researcher from Aotearoa, New Zealand. She is a postdoctoral fellow with Te Punaha Matatini at the University of Auckland and completed her PhD in freshwater ecology in 2018 at the University of Canterbury, where she investigated the environmental drivers of toxic algae blooms. Her research focuses on freshwater ecology, Indigenous knowledge, and most recently, understanding inequities for Indigenous people in higher education. Tara, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So uh, one of the things I'm definitely interested in, uh, before we talk a little bit more in depth about decolonizing the academy, which I absolutely want to get to, I want to hear a little bit more about your pathway into the academy. How did you get interested in the science that you do? And what made you want to become an academic? So I... I always had an affinity to water growing up. I was always in the water. I was always really fascinated by anything to do with water, whether that be in a beach um, or in a river. And so it kind of was natural, a natural path that I was going to study science when I went to um, university. I didn't know what a master's was or a PhD was when I started university, but somehow I ended up staying on into my into my PhD. And I think one of the really key things that that I experienced during the eight years from um, my undergraduate in marine biology to a PhD was that I never had a lecturer for any of my science papers that was Māori. And that really um, influenced my most recent work uh, which looks at the inequities for Māori in the in the academy. When you were going to university and you realized that you hadn't had any Māori professors or teachers, at what point did you start to like really notice that? Because I think sometimes those things can go unnoticed for some people, and then you sort of look back and say, "Oh wow." 
I've just noticed this, but this has been an ongoing thing for a long time. I know I had a similar experience working as a woman in tech. It was sort of something that I didn't really notice. And then when I suddenly like really realized and thought about it, I was like, whoa, I have been the only woman in every department I've worked at. I've worked at since I started in this uh, industry. I think as a student, I wasn't necessarily focused on who was um, teaching me. I was more so focused on, are there any other Māori students in my classes? Because those were the people that I naturally um, was drawn to. But when I kind of got to the end of my um, education, that's when I really started to look back and reflect really deeply about how I had experienced um, tertiary education. And that's when I realized, hey, I've never had a Māori lecturer. And then also because of my innate curiosity, I thought I started to think about where are the data uh, that looks at the number of Māori um, professors and lecturers. And that's, yeah, that's kind of started a whole nother area of study for me. So around, I don't know if it was around this time, but I definitely know you spent a bunch of time actually looking at the numbers and trying to unpick the data around representation of Maori in the New Zealand university system. Can you talk a little bit about that research? Yeah. So basically, as I said, I was really interested in it. So I, I looked on university websites, couldn't find any data, um, looked in a whole different bunch of different places couldn't find any data and eventually I got some data uh, from the Ministry of Education which is part of our government here in New Zealand and then I kind of reached out to some other Indigenous scholars working in the education space because of course as a scientist I um, am not an expert in, in education and that kind of started this amazing uh, working relationship and personal relationship with other Indigenous women. And that was a really, I think, defining moment in my career because that was the first time that I was able to work with other Indigenous women. So what that data showed was that over over a really long period of time, um, the, the percentage of Māori academics at all our universities here in New Zealand, we have eight, um, had remained stagnant around 5%. So, you know, our universities publish lots of stuff saying we value diversity, we value um, equity, and we're really inclusive work environments, but nothing has been done to increase uh, the percentage of Māori in, in the academic workforce. Yeah, uh, when looking at uh, the papers that you put together on this topic, one of the things you pointed out is that there has been an increase in uh, the number of Maori students coming into the university, but not a, a comparative increase in the number of staff uh, from the standpoint of academics, which mm-hmm. is kind of an interesting an interesting contradiction to see that the early pipeline, there's definitely some people coming in, but what's happening to those people and why are so many of them, I guess, falling out of that pipeline in terms of getting into academia? Obviously, not everyone who goes to university gets to academia. We definitely know that, mm. but there does seem to be a disconnect there. Yeah, there's a massive disconnect. And I think that that has implications on the labor of those Maori academics that are there. They're supporting so many students. And I really think it's the right of Indigenous students to be supervised by Indigenous um, academics. I think of my own PhD where 
I I was supervised by two Pākehā or non-Māori academics and and they taught me how to be an, an excellent non-Māori scientist, but that's not what I am. I'm a Māori scientist and I think about maybe how different my PhD would have been if I had actually had the opportunity to be supervised by someone who shared values, shared similar values, and had a, had a, had the same understanding of the land and how everything is interconnected as me. Can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, the way that the modern academics and in particular science has its own kind of colonized view of what science is and how that can often differ from the Maori view of science or the Maori view of land and ecosystems or just people. I'm trying to think about I think a lot of people who have no indigenous background will look at that and say, I don't understand what the difference is. Isn't science science? Yeah, so it, the the kind of Māori worldview is really different um, than a non-Māori worldview, similar to other, pe- other indigenous cultures' worldviews, um, but quite different to the Western, Western ideas of science. And I think about a paper that I'm working on at the moment, which is about kind of the ethic of stewardship that Māori have and how that is really different than Western conservation. So for us as Māori, we're very much part of the environment. So we are related to the rivers, to the mountains. So we have this this innate connection to the land. So one way to kind of um, exemplify this is through the word whenua. So in Māori, whenua means land. And whenua also means placenta. So when we give birth, we put our placenta back into our ancestral land. So we just have, have such a deep, deep connection to the land, um, which differs... To, so I guess in Western conservation, you want to protect a, an area. Um, no one interacts with it. But how we kind of view stewardship, it's very much an interactive um, ethic. And I think, I think you know, I had, I had over those eight years no Māori lecturers, but I was also never taught anything about Matauranga Māori. So that is Māori knowledge, which is distinctly different from um, Western science, but has a lot to offer um, when we use both Western science and Indigenous knowledge. So that was another key thing um, that I think is missing um, from education. And I guess that all plays into the idea of decolonizing the academy. It's about whose knowledge systems are privileged within that. And it's very much still Western science. I definitely think that we forget in all of the science training, and I'm not even necessarily just talking about science training in a university. I never went to university for science. That's not my background, but I definitely took science in high school back in Canada. And if we think about the way even just we talk about science in culture, 
um, the way we've talked about science in this podcast. There is this remove from it. We are trying to be um, not we're trying to look at something apart from ourselves and yes, kind of set idea it of objectivity. Yeah. Objectivity. Yeah. That's the word I was searching for and not finding that value of objectivity and remove from the subject of your study that you need to be able to distance yourself in order to understand it properly. And in looking a little bit, also sometimes the way that science has seemed to value breaking stuff down and isolating stuff into its very tiniest little pieces to try and understand that specific little piece. And I think missing a lot of the larger holistic pictures. Yeah, that's definitely a key difference is indigenous knowledge is very holistic. And I guess when we think about disciplines in science, you know, I say that I did my PhD in freshwater ecology, and that's a very specific um, discipline. But as a Māori, when I go out into the river, I'm not just thinking of that river, I'm thinking of the surrounding land use, I'm thinking of that river as it flows out to the sea and it starts in the mountains. So it's a whole different um, different idea. And someone was mentioning to me recently that, you know, disciplines are there to discipline us. And I, I very much consider myself an interdisciplinary um, researcher because my research doesn't just fit in one um, specific area. I definitely think that um, as you bring that up and talking about how, like you said, how your area is freshwater ecology, and that that sounds so specific. And of course, uh, I've talked to a lot of scientists over the time who have given me very, very specific areas of specialization and interest. Mm. And there is something about academics, I think even beyond science, that forces people to hyper-specialize and hyper-focus on a very specific area rather than reward cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary or a wider range of, of sort of holistic thinking. Mm, absolutely. And I, from my work with other Indigenous women who work in, in different spaces, when the social scientists, when the humanities scholars and, and the physical scientists get together, that's when, you know, amazing, um, amazing research can be conducted with people who, who have different areas of expertise and different um, kind of positioning. So I think maybe that leads me to ask if there's a value there. Um, what is sort of stopping people from embracing that value? Are there some structures in place or I guess probably some reward systems baked into academics that really discourage people from doing cross-disciplinary work or looking outside that narrow specialization? Mm. That's, a, that's a hard question. I, I think people just get get so focused on becoming an expert on one particular topic that they fail to step back and see see the bigger picture. Maybe it's a little bit of tunnel vision. When I did my PhD on toxic benthic cyanobacteria on a specific genus called Formidium, I knew that I never wanted to be the Formidium lady who, who knew nothing about anything except for this one 
one particular genus of, of cyanobacteria. So you had a strong will to not just be uh, super bucketed into one narrow area of expertise. Yeah, and I, I think that's a tendency for indigenous scientists um, more generally across lots of different spaces. You know, we see a lot of um, scientists internationally working in the DEI space, the diversity, equity and inclusion space, as well as their expertise on science. Yeah, that reminds me. And one of the things I was thinking about in preparing for this interview um, and read about a little bit is how people from indigenous backgrounds, whether it's Maori in New Zealand, I'm thinking also of my home country uh, of Canada, where all the universities there have indigenous studies departments. um, And those tend to be places where a lot of indigenous people are based. And those departments are always quite interdisciplinary. There's lots of different views. There's no sort of like one view of what that department is. There's a little bit of everything there. And most indigenous people who I've talked to or learned about are in those departments, even if they could be in biology or could be in the physics department or uh, could be in the sociology department. What is it about, I guess, our modern understanding of academics that means those depart- the people tend to coalesce in those specific, uh, sort of specifically non-specific departments, I guess? Mm. I think it's it's definitely related to the idea of safe spaces. So when you look at a biology department and it's full almost completely of non-Indigenous people, as an Indigenous person, you know, you, you, you question, is that going to be a, a culturally safe space for me to be in? Or would I rather go into a department where people – think like me um, and where my way of thinking and my worldview is normalized. So that's a question I often get asked by very well-meaning non-Māori academics is, oh, how can we get more Māori to apply for, for jobs in our department? And, you know, it comes down to would you want to be in a department when you're the lonely only Maori academic, and that's that's really unappealing. Yeah, it's it would if you have a choice. My suspicion is that you'd prefer to be with people who represent more of a safe space, who think like you, who have an understanding of where you come from. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think if if individual departments are really committed to. Um, properly acknowledging and including Indigenous scientists, then they need to advertise for multiple positions. So they need to have cluster hires where you're bringing in multiple Indigenous scientists, not just one. But also, it's not just about plugging more people into a fundamentally broken pipeline, as you mentioned before. Um, Institutions need to Firstly, acknowledge um, institutional racism and then move to to kind of move to structures which don't pre- predominantly benefit white, cis, able-bodied men. 
Do you think that institutions are slowly starting to move that way? Or do you find there's not a ton of movement? I feel like in the context of New Zealand, like internationally, I feel like other countries look at New Zealand as in terms of as leaders mm-hmm. in the space. And, and the sad reality is that we're really not. Um, there's a lot more work to do to, to increase the numbers, but to also, also make, make universities safe places to be for Māori. Like there are lots of Māori with PhDs and not many of them stay on in academia because there aren't all the, there aren't a lot of opportunities, but also because who would want to to stay in in such an unsafe space? So when I got to the end of my PhD, I was, you know, I was ready to leave university, and I never wanted to work there again. I worked during my PhD, you know, I was in the university, but I also worked for a Maori organisation, and the differences in terms of values and how I was valued and treated and how safe I, I felt were just completely different, you know. So at the Māori organisation, I could take my children to work with me. You know, they're just floating around and part of the furniture. When I graduated with my PhD, I had a four-month-old breastfed baby and I was told that I couldn't bring him to my PhD graduation, you know. So there's these massive contrasts in in the type of environments and the type of work environments. Do you think that, I guess more, this is more, as you're listening to you talk, I'm also thinking about the fact that academia is very much an international scaled industry, let's call it an industry, because it kind of is, that has a lot of norms that are set, I think, somewhat internationally. So my guess would be that it would be difficult for one place, certainly a place the size of New Zealand, to make a meaningful break while also continuing to be a part of that broader industry. So it, it feels to me like this is a larger problem for sure than just something that New Zealand or Canada or Australia or places with large um, indigenous populations can try and affect kind of within their own country in part because in a lot of ways, academia is such an international industry. Mm. And I think, you know, here in New Zealand, we're very much influenced by what's important internationally in academia so things like publishing papers in in really high you know what we call high impact journals like nature or science say but but for indigenous academics and indigenous scientists that's not always the most important thing like those journals are inaccessible for the communities that we're that we're part of so maybe that doesn't align with our with our kind of priorities and obligations to our own people. So there's this kind of massive um, disjoint between <laughs> disjoint um, between what the academy wants us to do and what's important for us to do. Right. There's that sense of the academy will promote me and I'll get better access, better resources, ability to hire if I go and publish my stuff in these well-recognized international journals that are only read by other freshwater 
uh, ecologists of the world. But then yeah. all of that information is sort of locked away from the communities mm. who could actually mm. practically use the information. And there's that yes. push and pull of all of those places that are considered elite or indicators of merit in mm. academics are often also incredibly gatekept. Yes, absolutely. And and as you spoke there, it made me think about um, one of our recent papers which looked into inequities in, in terms of pay and promotion. And, you know, we found that even if Indigenous academics are ticking all the boxes that the academy wants us to tick, we're still less likely to get promoted and we're getting paid less um, they're non Māori people who are doing the exact same thing. So it's like even if we do everything they want, they want us to do um, institutional racism means I'm still going to get paid, you know, ten grand less a year compared to a non Māori man. Even if we've both published papers in in nature and or science, so that was quite a. Um, quite a hard paper to write and, and hard to kind of reckon with as a, as a I guess, baby academic that I'm always going to be under, underpaid and underpromoted purely based on my gender and ethnicity. It definitely reminds us that even where we think people try very rigorously to remain objective and reward some kind of quote unquote shared recognition of excellent or excellence or merit it fars fall short of the idea for sure mm. and it also i think challenges us to think about what we actually mean when we say merit um and it makes me realize that quite often the idea of what is deserving of merit is very narrow. Mm. Yeah, the whole idea of excellence and impact and how that's different um, depending on your worldview. You know, so it's it goes back to what I was saying before. To a non-Maori researcher, being an excellent scientist might be publishing in, in natural science. But for me, an excellent, you know, excellence to me as an Indigenous woman is solving an environmental problem that is very important to the local Indigenous people. To me, it's making transformational changes that benefit the communities that I'm part of, not necessarily publishing in, in natural science. Right. And the Academy has really no way of recognizing that or quantifying that, which is something that an industry needs to do. I'm using heavy air quotes with needs uh, <laughs> in order to piece apart who is deserving of of an increased pay or promotion um, or even hiring in some cases. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's looking into this topic 
has been interesting. I'm not an academic myself. I spend a lot of time obviously talking with academics like yourself, uh, people from a wide variety of backgrounds and a wide variety of science and science adjacent disciplines. But I'm also the partner of an academic who I also see struggles with common academic complaints like heavy workload, um, not a lot of reward for that workload, not a lot of time to focus on research because he's got to spend a lot of time with increasing teaching loads and not a lot of appreciation for those teaching loads. Um, and obviously, during the era of coronavirus, there has been just an explosion of that, which was already very heavy and high. And mm. I think about how that also messes with an idea of community. If academics are expected to just spend all of their time doing research and none of their time in their own community, whether that's the community of their home or their wider community, it really isolates people from anything except the academy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's that's a huge problem in terms of workload and how that's been exacerbated. Um, in New Zealand, we've obviously been very lucky with how our government has has managed the pandemic, but our universities have been shedding uh, staff as a result of not having international um not having international students being enrolled because they can't get into the country. So I'm interested to kind of see, you know, a lot of the precariously employed staff have been shed and that's where a lot of the Māori academics are. So I'm really interested in in watching how those numbers changed over the next two years and whether we're going to see a a drop in that 5%. Yeah, um, I had sort of forgotten that um, New Zealand has really sort of shut down its borders. And um, have you guys closed almost entirely to international students over this last academic year? I'm pretty sure it's closed. Um, Only uh, residents can get back home. So I think they might have allowed a a small amount of international students to come back in, but it's, it's very limited in the universities. You know, they charge massive amounts of money to international students. So they're saying that's a massive um, amount of their income is now gone. And that's their justification for for shedding staff, which is increasing everyone's uh, workloads massively. Yeah, increasing workloads also people who were precariously employed to begin with end up being unemployed or pushed out of the academy. And if there's one thing I know in spending a lot of time with the academic in my household and his coworkers here is that um, once you get sort of pushed out, it's almost impossible to get back in. It's not something where you can climb up on it again in a year. It's very, very difficult to get in once you've been once you've gone out. Yeah, I think it's just it's so competitive to to even you know to get a get a a permanent position. You just have to have so many publications and so many citations, and it's it's just a massive expectation on early career academics. You know, uh, my contract finishes at the end of the year, and I'm I'm not sure that I'm gonna gonna get another. Um, position in a university. So yeah, it's a really, it's a worrying time. 
One of the other things I wanted to talk a little bit about is in as the world and academics in particular are trying to become more diversity conscious, trying to diversify the ranks, trying to start to decolonize itself, even if those are the babiest of baby steps. Um, one of the things that was a reoccurring theme in some of my reading was how a lot of that effort ends up kind of funneling down to the people who are from those backgrounds within the academy. So if grant proposals now have to talk about how are you going to make sure that um, the indigenous people in the area you're studying aren't sidelined, a lot of times it's the indigenous people who work in the academy who are asked to make those justifications or provide that information or check those grants to see if it is actually appropriate. Like, even when we say, all right, let's work to do this, probably because of how little is understood and disseminated, it always ends up just adding workload to people from those backgrounds. And it it feels like, I'm sure, I feel like it probably feels like just all of this diversity stuff is piled on your shoulders, and you're sort of trying to carry it all, which is a lot. Yeah, it's it's we we have a policy in our um in a lot of the funding in New Zealand, which is ex- exactly what you describe. Um, researchers have to have to say how their research impacts Maori, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and that definitely results in a lot of extra work for those indigenous scientists. So, you know. Every kind of funding round, I get a bunch of emails from people who I've never even met before asking me to be on funding, funding applications. And, you know, I always say no because I'm like, who are you? And, and a lot of the time they're not even in areas that I know anything about. The last one, um, as a kind of example, it, they emailed me the day before the funding application was due. They'd already gone to international researchers. They had their CVs and they had formulated, you know, their research proposal. And then they came to me at the last minute. I'd never, I'd never met them before. I didn't know them. And they asked for my CV. And I mean, of course I'm going to say no, because that just feels like very much an afterthought. And, and so some of those policy changes which say you have to think about Māori, they do result in negative, um, they have these kind of negative ramifications and and they result result in Indigenous scientists having to do, you know, essentially work two jobs um, of trying to do that. And often it takes them away from their, their actual research, so they're doing bits and bobs on everyone else's projects um, but not fully focusing, I guess, on what they really want to do. Yeah, it feels like a really great example of how a well-intentioned exercise in bureaucratic box ticking can have very different effects than those that are intended. Uh, My guess is that the people who put that in place envisioned like building networks that included more indigenous people in order to expand that knowledge. But what actually happens is it becomes box ticking, like you say, where people just get asked to add their name onto a thing without really honoring the spirit of 
that approach. It's just, it's another box I have to tick to get my thing through all of these hoops. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think those, a lot of those things are well intentioned, um, but, but how they play out and are manipulated by certain, um, players is, is not always, um, positive. I guess, you know, when I think about the changes that I think need to happen to indigenize uh, universities, I think that we need top-down indigenous leadership. So I, when I think of a university in New Zealand, I think about how are they cognizant of whose stolen land they are sitting on? So how do they... How do they respect that and what are they doing about it? I guess is always an important thing to think about. I know in in other places, people, researchers often do a land acknowledgement, but what's the next step after acknowledging this is stolen land? You know, what are we going to do next? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it can't just stop at acknowledging it. It shouldn't just stop at acknowledging it. What is the next step? And I definitely haven't heard a lot of discussion about what that could be for sure. Mm. So where you see, or maybe you haven't, but I'm curious of your thoughts or your recollections of what a strong relationship looks like or a better approach at decolonizing the academy looks like in some examples that you've seen, where you've seen an approach executed well, where you've seen something done better. Um, I'm just curious to get your take or your thoughts on where you see or where you have seen what feels to you like more in spirit with progress rather than kind of box ticking or counter to it. I think it's really putting money, resources, um, and, and a shift of power. I don't know if I really believe universities can be decolonized as such mm-hmm. because they're, they're just such a, a colonized inst- institution. I kind of think we might have to start all over again um, and reimagine beyond the, cover- the current structures of universities. I, I guess when I think of university structures, a really good place to start would be co-governance. So in New Zealand, we have vice-chancellors. There's never been a Māori vice-chancellor. Mm-hmm. I'd love every university to have a Māori vice-chancellor, and I, I think the changes that would come from that uh, would be would be significant. I think, you know, for every non-Māori head of school, dean, whatever, for any faculty – there should be a Māori one because in New Zealand we have a treaty, you know, we're promised equality. And so that's, that, that's what honouring the treaty looks like to me. It looks like at every step in every department, co-governance with Māori. And so that might be really radical for some people to even think about. I think even if people think it's radical and can point out places where it doesn't make sense or it maybe they think it can't work. I feel like it's always useful to think about radical options because they can push us 
at least more in the direction we should be going rather than us keeping and clinging really closely to a familiar path, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, you know, I think think there are a lot of people in universities who very much cling cling to the idea of not changing anything because that that's how it's been for so long and I guess maybe unconsciously or consciously they benefit from the systems the way they are now so why would they want to change them Yeah, I mean, most of the people in those systems are strongly benefiting from those systems. Um, So it's, the human brain probably has a lot of problems working against what it intrinsically understands, whether you acknowledge it or not, but your brain probably understands that it's intrinsically benefiting you. (laughs) Even if you don't, you can't articulate it. I feel like our brains always kind of know, which is why we cling to things. It's like, ah, oh, but it's working for me. I'm going to hold on to this thing that's working. Yeah, well, there's 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 a lot of white fragility in in universities. You know, just the other day in New Zealand, a a, a white male professor published a, a piece in in the media, an opinion piece, which was kind of suggesting that we don't use the word racism and that we should be careful with how we use racism. And, you know, as as an Indigenous woman, I was deeply, and someone who studies, someone who experiences racism and who studies racism, like that was so deeply offending to me that this professor who's, you know, who lives a life of privilege and is privileged in many many aspects of his life because because he is a white man. Um, yeah, that was just so kind of deeply offensive that he thinks that we shouldn't say the word racism because, you know, the first step in identifying a problem is often saying that there is a problem. So universities need to admit that they're institutionally racist um, and then we can kind of move forward together and think about, what does a an anti-racist university look like? In some of the conversations I've had with people on a wide variety of topics, whether it's racism, decolonization, um, sexism, um, one of the things I find kind of fascinating as a paradox is when I start to unpick this with uh, some white folks, and in particular white men in my life, um, and in particular the ones who feel uh, very strongly about or have a reaction to what they feel are quote-unquote diversity hires, right? You've been hired because you're indigenous or because you're a woman, right? Like that's why you were hired, you're a diversity hire. What I find really interesting about that paradox is it really reveals this underlying fear on the topic that maybe the only reason they were hired is because they're a white man. Mm. <laughs> right? Like it Yeah, exactly. It's kind of revealing that underlying by by accusing someone else of not being hired for merit by being hired because of identity politics, you're kind of revealing that it concerns you. It would concern you if that was true for you, even though we kind mm. of know that that's a big part of why you're here, but potentially <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's that that white fragility coming coming back into play. 
Yeah, for sure. It's um, the idea of people being where they are because of deserve or because of merit is this this kind of facade in our world. Um, there are bits and pieces of it that sometimes are true, but it's never the whole story. I don't know that I've ever encountered it being the entire story. Yeah, I think people should really, you know, try and lean into that discomfort and learning and and thinking a little bit critically about about why things are the way they were and how they potentially, you know, have gotten to different different places. Any advice for people on exactly what you said, which is leaning into discomfort? I think as soon as uh, when people start to feel uncomfortable, their immediate reaction is to just, whoa, I'm backing away from that one. Hmm, I guess that's something I, I um, don't think about a lot, mm. mainly because I'm focused on, I guess, helping other Indigenous people. So I don't tend to think about um, how how non-Indigenous folk can, can best lean into that. But I do think it's just, um, you know, when you think about white scientists, I think they need to be more kind of know more about the history, history of science, the history of the land that they are settlers on. You know, so just just today I was reading a book about one of the first scientists in New Zealand, um, which was really a kind of interesting insight. You know, we have lots of medals named after all the scientists. He was talking about lots of prizes, science prizes. And then it, it, it spoke about how he stole my ancestors' bones from their graves and sold them to museums overseas. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's like that reckoning where of what of I guess that science was part of part of colonization and it was a tool um, that was used against indigenous people. So I think I think as scientists we need to be have a whole lot more understanding of the history of science and and not just the history of Western science, but the history of science that Indigenous people, um, the science of Indigenous people. So often when I talk to young Māori people who are interested in science, I have to remind them, your ancestors were the first scientists in Aotearoa, the first scientists in New Zealand. You know, we our ancestors had such an amazing knowledge of of the surrounding environment, and that's how we not only survived but also thrived. I think that's something that's really missing from from education is if we could empower Indigenous um, students by by showing them that their ancestors were scientists and were amazing scientists, then that might break down some of those barriers. Yeah, we tend to focus on on both sides. And this is for sure a hallmark of a colonial mindset is we focus on the positives that a colonial approach to science has brought us. And while it has brought us a lot of positives, it has also trampled on a lot of things. It's got a lot of ugly history in its past. And it is 
I think, very, very easy for those of us who value science and who love science to just not even look at that ugliness, even when we look at it in the modern day, and we're willing to point it out and say, you know, look at our politics, look at this, look at all these ugly pieces. We don't tend to turn that lens inward on ourselves or our history or the things or the people that we exalt and value in our scientific history. We don't tend to turn that same lens to note and acknowledge and recognize that the history is full of ugly things too. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think of there's a fellowship in, in New Zealand called the James Cook Fellowship, and I've been, you know, rattling on about this this fellowship for so long because I, as a Maori person, I could never go to my communities and and celebrate that I got the James Cook Fellowship because, you know, for Indigenous people around the world, James Cook is the epitome of colonization, you know. He, it's not anything to be celebrated. It's, it's you know, he re- represents colonization in, in some respects. So, you know, who we name things after, who the buildings are named after in our institutions, whose photos line the walls of those institutions, those are, those are a whole lot of things which we need to be really reflective about. Yeah, for sure. And I th- think as well, I'm just trying to think back to my own education in Canada, where where we have a lot of um, very ugly history with the indigenous populations there. And I'm thinking back to my own education as a kid. And while we were taught a lot about the, well, not, I mean, not enough, but we were taught some about some of the colonial effects on the indigenous populations, we weren't actually taught very much about what those people were like before we showed up. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of like not, it's just not there. The story of indigenous people in Canada, in terms of what you're taught as a student, starts when the colonies show up, right? It starts when Europeans arrive. That's when we, you know, that's when the the story begins. And that's fundamentally wrong. There were people in Canada and New Zealand and Australia and the United States um, a long time before Europeans showed up. And they had thriving cultures. They had survived for a long time. And all of that is sort of been struck from the record. Mm. Yeah, which- absolutely. We have the exact same thing here in New Zealand and in, in many colonized um, nations throughout the world. You know, my dad was taught in school that James Cook discovered New Zealand. He was the first person, you know, not Māori. Um, <laughs> he discovered New Zealand, New Zealand with people on it. <laughs> yeah. The paradox Minus is right the there. People. Yeah, in New Zealand we're going through an interesting, um, interesting process at the moment of teaching New Zealand history in schools. So teaching um, about colonization, Maori pre-European arrival. And I think that's a really unique opportunity. And if it's done correctly, would have, will have really positive um, influences on, on future generations and, and how they see the world and how they act. Yeah, I 
I think that approach is really important because I don't think until I was an adult and started to reckon with colonization as a real thing, like until someone I first really started thinking about it. I think to me, indigenous people were kind of the indigenous people of Canada were kind of like, quote unquote, over it was it was a thing that happened, but isn't still happening. It's it didn't have a an impact on my current life, which is just completely wrong. But there was a real time in my life where I think it felt like indigenous people weren't I feel like I had been taught that they were sort of that was a part of history and no longer sort of relevant to the modern day, which is just a tragedy in education and took a lot of time for me to start to try and correct. Yeah, that's that's just you know it's crazy to think that um, that that indigenous people I guess didn't exist and that's all part of the assimilation project I guess. Yeah, for sure, and that that project was working is the really troubling part because it worked on me. Mm. So I guess now it's like, what can we do to move forward, move forward from that in in the context of indigenous scientists? How can we, how can we change what we value in science? How can we value indigenous knowledge the same as we value Western science? How can we, how can we support indigenous scientists in in their careers? Um, you know, and I think it's really, we're all losing out by not having more Indigenous scientists. A whole bunch of people working on a project that have similar worldviews, you know, similar backgrounds. Research tells us that there, you know, that diversity increases novelty in science. So we're all missing out when we continue to exclude and marginalise Indigenous science and Indigenous scientists. I definitely agree. And the more I have learned about Indigenous worldviews and values, in particular in the areas that cross with science, but even beyond that, the more I am angry that it was not valued because it seems to me in trying to understand it, there's a lot, there's so much value there. Like why ignore the value that's there? Yeah, I think, I think there are, there are a lot of scholars worldwide who are still kind of hampering progress by saying indigenous knowledge isn't real. Um, Or it's, it's, you know, the poor cousin of Western science yeah, so how do we how do we get around that and those people? Tara, it's been really excellent talking with you. Any parting words for our listener on this topic that you wanted to leave people with? I think we just all, you know, all need to be a bit more cognizant of of whose knowledge is valued in different places and and work towards really privileging indigenous knowledge and indigenous people in science 
Tara, it's been really great having you. I hope you, uh, I, I hope you will let us know uh, as your future papers come out, especially on this topic, but also on freshwater mm. ecology. Yes, yes, I've got a few, few on the winds. If you want to learn more about Tara McAllister, we will have links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find in your podcatcher that you're listening to us on right now, or on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 